Section 5 of Rameau's Nephew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot. Translated by Ian C. Johnston. Section 5. Me. Is there anyone out there who has the courage to share your opinion? Him. What do you mean, anyone? It's the opinion and the language of all society. Me. Those among you who are not great rascals have to be great fools. Him. Fools among us? I swear, there is only one fool, and that's the one who gives us a good time in exchange for our imposing this language on him. Me. But how can anyone let himself be so crudely imposed upon? For in the end, the superior talent of Dangville and Clarence is well established. Him. We swallow whole the lie which flatters us, and sip drop by drop a truth set down before us. Besides, we have such an earnest and truthful demeanor. Me. Nonetheless, you must have sinned at least once against the principles of your art and let slip inadvertently some of those bitter truths which hurt. For despite the wretched, abject, vile, and abominable role you play, I think that, basically, you have a refined soul. Him. In my case, not at all. The devil take me if I have any idea what I am deep down. In general, my mind is as round as a ball and my character as open as a wicker chair. Oh, I'm never false if I have any interest in being truthful, and never truthful if I have any interest in being dishonest. I say things as they come to me. If they're sensible, all well and good. If impertinent, people don't worry about it. I use my candor in speaking to the full. I've never thought about my life before speaking, or while I'm talking, or after I've finished talking. In that way, I don't hurt anyone. Me. But that's just what happened to you with those respectable people whose house you lived in and who were so kind to you. Him. What about it? It was unfortunate. A bad moment. These things happen in life. No happiness lasts. I was too well off. It couldn't last. We have, as you know, the most numerous and exclusive company. It's a school for humanity, the renewal of ancient hospitality. All the fallen poets, we gathered them up. We had Palisso after his Zara, Bray after Les Fargeneroux, all the discredited musicians, all the authors no one reads anymore, all the actresses hissed off the stage, all the boot actors, a pile of poor disgraced people, dull parasites. I have the honor of being at their head, the brave chief of a timid band. I'm the one who urges them to eat the first time they come. I'm the one who demands they get something to drink. They take up so little room. Some ragged young people who don't know where to lay their heads, but who are good-looking. Others are villains who suck up to the master and send him off to sleep so they can scoop up what he's left with the lady of the house. We appear carefree, but at bottom we're all moody and greedy. Wolves are no hungrier than we are, nor are tigers more cruel. We cram ourselves like wolves when the earth has been covered in snow for a long time, and, like tigers, we rip apart anything which has succeeded. Sometimes the crowds of Bertie, Monsage, and Vieux Morian come together, and then there's a fine old noise in the menagerie. 
You've never seen so many wretched creatures in one place. Cantankerous, harmful, and angry. No one hears anything but the names of Buffon, Duclos, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Voltaire, D'Alembert, Diderot, and God only knows what epithets are attached to them. No one can have any wit unless he is as stupid as we are. That's the place where the plan for the Comédie Les Philosophes was conceived. I'm the one who came up with the scene of the peddler. Oh, I based it on La Theologie on Quenwil. You don't get off the hook in it any more than anyone else. Me. So much the better. Perhaps you're giving me more honor than I deserve. I'd be humiliated if those who speak badly about so many expert and decent people decided to say something good about me. Him. There are many of us, and each one must pay his dues. After the sacrifice of the great animals, we immolate the others. Me. Insulting science and virtue in order to make a living. That's really expensive bread. Him. Oh, I've already told you we have no effect. We could injure the entire world, and we wouldn't hurt anyone. Sometimes our company includes the peasant Abbe Delavay, the fat Abbe Leblanc, and the hypocrite Batou. The fat Abbe is malicious only before he's eaten. Once he's had his coffee, he throws himself into an armchair, rests his feet against the shelf by the chimney, and goes to sleep like an old parrot on its perch. If the noise gets violent, he yawns, stretches his arms, rubs his eyes, and says, All right, what's up? What is it? We're trying to find out if Piron has more wit than Voltaire. Let's get this straight. Are you talking about wit? It's not a question of taste, for your Piron has no notion of taste. No idea at all? No. Then we set out on a discussion of taste. Then our patron signals with his hand that we should listen to him, because he's keener on taste than on anything. Taste, he says. Taste is something... My goodness, I've no idea what he said it was, and neither does he. Sometimes our friend Rabet is with us. He amuses us with cynical stories, miracles about people in convulsions where he was a visual witness, and also with a few cantos from his poem, on a subject which he knows really well. I hate his verses, but I like to hear him recite. He has the air of someone truly weird. All those around him cry out, Now that's what we call a poet. Just between us, that poetry is nothing but a din of all sorts of confused noises, the barbarous song of people living in the Tower of Babel. Sometimes we also get a visit from a certain simpleton with a dull, stupid expression, who has a mind like a demon, and who's smarter than an old monkey. He's one of those figures who invite jokes and tricks, someone God made to correct people who judge on the basis of appearances, those who should have learned at their own mirrors that it is just as easy to be a witty man and look like a fool as it is to hide a fool under an intelligent-looking physiognomy. It's a really common form of cowardice to sacrifice a good man for the amusement of others. And they never fail to go after this man. He's a trap we set for the new arrivals, and I've hardly seen a single one of them fail to get caught. I was sometimes surprised by the justice of this fool's observations on men and on their characters. I told him as much. Well, he replied, it's a matter of getting some benefits out of bad company, just like out of being a libertine. You get compensation for the loss of innocence by also losing your prejudices. In a society of bad people, where vice shows itself with its mask removed, you learn to recognize it. And besides, I've read a bit. Me. What have you read? Him. Well, I've read, I read, 
and I constantly reread Theophrastus, La Brue, and Moliere. Me. Those are excellent books. Him. They are much better than people think, but who knows how to read them? Me. Everyone, according to how intelligent he is. Him. Hardly anyone. Could you tell me what people are looking for in those books? Me. Amusement and instruction. Him. What instruction? That's the point. Me. A knowledge of one's duties, a love of virtue, and a hatred of vice. Him. Well, I gather from them everything one should do and everything which one shouldn't say. So when I read Lavar, I say to myself, be a miser if you want to, but be careful not to talk like a miser. When I read Tartuffe, I tell myself, be a hypocrite if you like, but don't talk like a hypocrite. Keep the vices which are useful, but don't assume a tone or an appearance which will make you ridiculous. In order to be sure about this tone and appearance, you have to know them. Now, these authors have provided excellent portraits of them. I am myself, and I remain what I am, but I act and speak in a way that's suitable. I'm not one of those people who disparage the moralists. One can profit a lot from them, above all, from those who have put morals into action. Vice doesn't hurt people, except now and then. But the visible features of vice injure them from morning to night. Perhaps it would be better to be a scoundrel than to look like one. Insolence in a character is only insulting from time to time, but an insolent appearance is always insulting. As for the rest, don't go and imagine that I'm the only reader of this sort. I've no particular merit in this, except that I've done systematically, with a keen intelligence and a reasonable and true aim in mind, what most others do by instinct. That's the reason why what they read doesn't make them better than me, and why they continue to be ridiculous in spite of themselves, whereas I'm ridiculous only when I choose to be, and then I leave them far behind me. For the same art which at certain times teaches me to save myself from being ridiculous, also teaches me at other times to make myself ridiculous, in a superior way. Then I recall everything other people have said, everything I've read, and I add to those everything from my own capital funds, which in this type of thing are a surprisingly rich resource. Me. You've done well to reveal these mysteries to me. Without that, I would have thought you were contradicting yourself. Him. No, I don't do that at all. Fortunately, for one occasion when it's necessary to avoid ridicule, there are a hundred people where one has to be ridiculous. There's no better role to play in the presence of grand people than that of the fool. For a long time there was an official gesture to the king, but there has never been an official wise man to the king. Me, I'm a fool for Bertie and many others, perhaps for you at this moment, or perhaps you're my fool. A man who wanted to be wise would not have such a fool. That's why anyone who has a fool is not wise. If he's not wise, he's a fool, and perhaps, if he's a king, his fool's fool. Beyond this, you should remember that in a subject as varied as morals, there's no absolute, essential, universal truth or falsity, unless it's the fact that one has to be what one's self-interest wants one to be, good or bad, wise or foolish, decent or ridiculous, honest or vicious. If by chance virtue had led the way to a fortune, either I'd have been virtuous or I'd have pretended to be virtuous just like anyone else. People wanted me to be ridiculous, and that's what I've made myself. As for viciousness, nature alone paid the cost of that. When I say vicious, 
It's in order to speak your language. For if we were to come to an understanding of each other, it could turn out that you call vice what I call virtue, and virtue what I call vice. We also had among us authors from the Opera Comique, their actors and actresses, and more often their managers Corby, Mouet, all resourceful people of superior merit. And I was forgetting the great literary critics, La Vacourour, Les Petites Affichées, L'Année Littéraire, L'Observateur Littéraire, La Censure Hebdomadaire, all that clique of columnists. Me. L'Année Littéraire, L'Observateur Littéraire, that's not possible. They detest each other. Him. That's true. But all beggars are reconciled at the feeding trough. That damned Observateur Littéraire. I wish the devil had taken the man and his columns. It's that little cur of an avaricious priest, that stinking usurer, who's the cause of my disaster. He appeared on our horizon for the first time yesterday. He arrived at the hour which drives us all out of our hideouts. Dinner time. When the weather is bad, anyone among us who has a twenty-four sou coin in his pocket for cab fare is a happy man. Some people make fun of a fellow beggar who arrives in the morning with mud up to his ribs and soaked to the bone and then in the evening have to return home in the same condition. There was one of them, I don't know which one, who a few months ago had a violent tangle with the Savoyard peasant who had set up at our door. They were running on credit, and the creditor wanted the debtor to settle up, but the latter didn't have the money. Well, they served the meal, and honored the abbé by placing him at the head of the table. I come in. I notice him. So I say to him, Well, abbé, so you're presiding today. That's fine for today. But tomorrow you move down one setting, if you please, and the day after tomorrow to the next place setting, and thus from place to place, either to the left or the right, until you move from the place which I've occupied once before you, Freyra once after me, Dora once after Freyra, Palaiseau once after Dora, and come to rest beside me, a poor dull bugger like yourself. We siedo sempre come on maestoso caso fra duoi coglioni. The abbe, who's a good little devil and takes everything well, began to laugh. Mademoiselle was struck by the truth of my observation, and the justice of my comparison, and she began to laugh. All those who were seated to the right and to the left of the abbe, and whom he had moved down one notch, began to laugh. So everyone was laughing except Monsieur, who was irritated, and went at me with things which wouldn't have mattered at all if we'd been alone. Rameau, you're an impudent man. I know that. That's why you receive me here. A scoundrel. Just like the others. A beggar. Would I be here if I weren't? I'll see to it that you're thrown out. After dinner, I'll leave on my own. I'd advise you to do that. So we ate, and I didn't miss a bite. After we'd eaten well and drank a good deal, because, after all, it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. Mr. Goo is someone whom I've never avoided. I made my decision and was preparing to leave. I'd given my word in the presence of so many people that I had to keep it. I was prowling around the apartment for a long time, looking for my walking stick and my hat in places where they wouldn't be, all the time counting on the fact that my patron would let out a new torrent of abuse, that someone would intervene, and that we'd finish up by being reconciled because we'd lost our tempers. I wandered around, I kept wandering around, for I wasn't feeling anything inside, but my patron, well, he was blacker and grimmer than Homer's Apollo when he fired his arrows down on the Greek army. He was walking back and forth with his hat pulled down more than usual, and his fist on his chin. Mademoiselle came up to me. But, Mademoiselle, what's been so extraordinary, then? Have I been any different today from my usual self? I wish him to leave. I will leave. I haven't done him any wrong. 
Excuse me, but Monsieur l'Abbé was invited, and... He let himself down by inviting the Abbé, and then letting me in, and with me so many other hangers-on like me. Come on, my dear Rameau, you must apologize to Monsieur l'Abbé. I don't want his pardon. Come on, come on, all this will sort itself out. They took me by the hand and dragged me towards the Abbé's armchair. I held out my arms. I looked at the Abbé with a sort of admiration. For who had ever made an apology to the Abbé? Abbé, I said to him, Abbé, all this is really silly, isn't it? And then I started to laugh, and so did he. So right there I was forgiven in that quarter. But I had to tackle the other one, and what I had to say to him was a different game altogether. I don't know much about how I framed my apology. Monsieur, look at this fool. He's been making me suffer for too long. I don't want to hear any more talk about him. Monsieur is angry. Yes, I am very angry. That won't happen any more. Well, the first scoundrel... I don't know if he was in one of his moody days when Mademoiselle is afraid to go near him and doesn't dare touch him, except with velvet mitts, or whether he misheard what I was saying, or whether I spoke badly. But things got worse than before. To hell with it. Doesn't he know me? Doesn't he know that I'm like a child, and that there are situations where I just let everything go under me? And then, God forgive me, I thought I'd never have a rest from performing. Even a puppet made of steel guts gets worn out if the strings are pulled from morning to night, and from night to morning. I must relieve them of their boredom. I take that for granted. But I have to amuse myself sometimes. In the middle of this mess, a fatal thought went through my mind, an idea which made me arrogant and inspired me with pride and insolence. It was the notion that they couldn't do without me, that I was someone indispensable. Me. Yes, I think you're very useful to them. But they're even more so to you. You won't find a house as good as that one when you want to. But those people, if they're missing one fool, can come up with a hundred. Him. A hundred fools like me? Mr. Philosopher, they're not as common as that. Yes, some insipid fools. It's harder to find quality in foolishness than in talent or virtue. I'm a rare member of my species, yes, very rare. Now that they don't have me any more, what are they doing? They're as bored as dogs. I'm an inexhaustible sack of impertinence. At every moment I had a joke which made people laugh until they cried. For them, I was an entire house of idiots. Me. So that's why you had table, bed, coat, vest, trousers, shoes, and a small allowance. Him. Well, that's the good side. That's the profit. But what about the charges? You don't say a word about those. First, if there was a rumor about a new play, no matter what the weather, I had to poke my nose in all those attics in Paris until I found the author. Then I had to find a way to read the work, and to insinuate skillfully that there was a role in it which would be performed extremely well by someone I knew. By whom, if you please? By whom? A good question. Someone with grace, charm, and delicacy. You mean Mademoiselle Dangville? Do you know her by any chance? Uh, yes, a little, but it's not her. Then who? I to say her name in a low voice. Her? Yes, her. I'd repeat, somewhat ashamed, for there are times I feel a sense of modesty. And when I repeated the name, you should have seen the poet make a long face, or at other times blow up in a temper right in front of me. However, for better or worse, I had to bring my man to dinner, and he didn't want to get involved. He'd stall and offer his thanks, you should have seen how I was treated if I didn't succeed in my negotiations with him. I was allowed, a fool, an oaf, 
I was good for nothing. I wasn't worth the glass of water they'd given me to drink. But it was even worse if she got the part. Then I had to go fearlessly through the midst of the booing public, and their good judges, no matter what people say about them, and make my applause heard as a one-man clack. I attracted people's attention and sometimes stole the booing away from the actress. I'd hear people whispering beside me, It's a valet in disguise, one of those belonging to the man who sleeps with her. Won't the rascal ever shut up? People have no idea what could make a person do that. They think it's stupidity, whereas it comes from a motive that excuses everything. Me. Up to and including breaking the laws. Him. Finally, however, I became known, and people said, Oh, it's Rameau. My only option was to throw out some ironic expression to salvage the ridicule of my solitary applause, so that people would interpret it as its opposite. You have to admit that it takes a powerful interest to brave the assembled public like that, and the effort is worth more than one small EQ. Me. Why didn't you get some help? Him. Well, I've done that too. I earned a bit of money from it. Before going into the torture chamber, we had to memorize some brilliant passages where we had to set the tone. If I happened to forget them, or got confused, there was a real earthquake when I returned. You've no idea the kind of fuss they made. And then in the house there was a pack of dogs to look after. It's true that I'd taken on this job, like a fool. And then I had to take care of the cats. And I was only too happy if McCoo favored me with a claw scratch which ripped my cuff or my hand. Crick wet is subject to colic, and it's my job to rub her belly. Previously, Mademoiselle had vapors. Now it's nerves. I'm not mentioning the other slight indispositions which no one bothered about in front of me. Those were all right. I've never believed in too much formality. I've read, I don't know where, that a prince known as the Great used to rest sometimes leaning against the back of his mistress's toilet commode. People act relaxed around their familiars, and in those days I was more familiar than anyone. I'm the apostle of familiarity and relaxation. I preached them there by example, without anyone objecting to me. They just had to let me be. I've given you a sketch of my patron. Mademoiselle is beginning to put on weight, and you should hear the fine stories people make of that. Me. You're not one of those people, are you? Him. Why not? Me. At the very least, it's indecent to make your benefactors sound ridiculous. Him. But isn't it even worse to let your good deeds give you an excuse to discredit your protege? Me. If the protege wasn't vile on his own, nothing would give his protector such a right. Him. But if these people weren't ridiculous in themselves, one couldn't make up good stories about them. And then is it my fault if they become vulgar? Is it my fault, once they've become vulgar, if people betray and ridicule them? If they decide to live with people like us and have any common sense, they have to expect all sorts of dark stuff. People who take up with us, surely they know us for what we are, for self-interested souls, vile and two-timing? If they understand us, then everything's fine. There is a tacit agreement that they'll provide good things for us, and sooner or later, we'll pay back the good they've done us with something bad. Isn't this the agreement that exists between a man and his pet monkey or parrot? Broom cries out that Palisaw, his guest and friend, has written some couplets attacking him. Palisaw had to compose the couplets, and it's Broo who's in the wrong. Poinsonnet cries out that Palisaw has ascribed to him the couplets he wrote against Broo. 
But Palasaur had to ascribe to Poinsonnet the couplets he wrote attacking Broom, and it's Poinsonnet who's in the wrong. The little Abbe Ray cries out that his friend Palasaur has snatched away his mistress after he introduced her to him. But he shouldn't have introduced someone like Palasaur to his mistress if he wasn't prepared to lose her. Palasaur did his duty, and it's Abbe Ray who is in the wrong. The bookseller David cries out because his associate Palasaw has slept with or wanted to sleep with his wife. The wife of the bookseller David cries out that Palasaw has told anyone willing to listen that he has slept with her. Whether Palasaw has slept with the bookseller's wife or not is difficult to determine because the wife's duty was to deny the fact and Palasaw could have let people believe what was not true. Whatever the case, Palasaw played his role and it's David and his wife who were in the wrong. Helvetius may cry out that Palasaw slanders him by putting him in a scene as a dishonest man, but Palasaw still owes him the money he borrowed for the medical treatment for his bad health, as well as for his food and clothing. But should Helvetius have expected any other treatment from a man soiled with all sorts of infamy? A man who for fun makes his friends swear off his religion? Who appropriates the assets of his partners? Who has no faith, law, or feeling? Who runs after fortune, per fa et nafa? who measures his days by the act of villainy he commits, and who has even lampooned himself on stage as one of the most dangerous rascals. A piece of impudence I believe we've not seen in the past, and won't see in the future. No. So it's not Palasaw, but Helvetius who's in the wrong. If one takes a young man from the provinces to the zoo at Versailles, and his foolishness persuades him to stick his hand through the bars, or the tiger's, or the panther's cage, and if the young man leaves his arm behind in the throat of the ferocious animal, who's in the wrong? All that is written in that tacit agreement. Too bad for the man who doesn't know that, or who forgets it. How many of those people accused of viciousness I could justify by appealing to this universal and sacred pact, whereas people should accuse themselves of stupidity? Yes, you fat countess. You're the one in the wrong when you gather around you what people of your sort call characters, and when these characters play dirty tricks on you and you do the same, thus exposing yourself to the resentment of decent people. Who honest people do what they ought to do, and so do your characters. And it's your fault for having collected them. If Burton Hu lived quietly and peacefully with his mistress, if through the honesty of their characters they'd made the acquaintance of decent people, they'd have summoned around them men of talent, people known in society for their virtue. If they'd reserved for a small enlightened select group hours of entertainment, taken from the sweet life they had together loving each other in the quiet of their retreat, do you think people would have made up stories about them, good or bad? So then, what happened to them? They got what they deserved. They've been punished for their imprudence. And we're the ones whom Providence has destined from all eternity to bring justice to the Bertin of today. And it's people like us among our descendants who are destined to bring justice to the Mansage and Bertin of the future. But while we execute the decrees of justice on stupidity, you paint us as we are and carry out these just decrees against us. What would you think of us if, with our disgraceful habits, we claimed that we enjoyed popular favor? You'd say we were out of our minds. And those who expect decent treatment from people born vicious, from vile and base characters, are they wise? Everything in this world receives its due. There are two public prosecutors. The one by your door punishes the criminal offenses against society. Nature is the other. She recognizes all the vices which escape the laws. You devote yourself to debauchery with women. You'll get dropsy. You're a scoundrel. You'll get consumption. You open your door to rascals, and you live with them. 
you'll be betrayed, mocked, and despised. The simplest thing to do is to resign yourself to the equity of these judgments, and tell yourself that it's all right. Then you can shake your ears and change your ways, or else stay as you are, but on the conditions mentioned above. Me. You're right. End of section 5